First Thessalonians chapter number one. Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And ye became followers of us. The us, of course, being Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus. Ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God word is spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful tonight, today. We're thankful for the word. We're thankful for the hope that we have to come. We pray for those today who are hurting, those today who are missing loved ones, those today that have great needs, we, we, we lift them up to you. We thank you that you understand now, and someday we'll understand, why we sometimes go through the things that we do. We pray that you would help us today as we look at your word more closely. Help us to have open minds, receptive hearts, a desire to learn and grow. I pray, Lord, this morning, for those that are here that do not yet know you, for those that have never been saved, for those who have never, like the one we just heard about, repented of their sin and trusted you, Lord, that today would be the day of salvation for them. In Jesus' name, amen. Be seated, please. Paul, the apostle, was a constant source of encouragement to the churches that he had had a part in starting and planting. Such was the case here in the city of Thessalonica. He would frequently write them letters that we now have in our, in our Bibles, and often he would just sort of brag on them, encourage them. Much of this book, First Thessalonians, is that. Writing to encourage them about the things that he had seen in them and the things that he had heard about them from a distance. We just read about that. Much of 1 Thessalonians is written regarding the hope that they have in the future, and that we have in the future, the life to come. But for many in this world, the future is not all that hopeful. For many, the future is uncertain. It's unsure. And, and being unsure of what will happen 
is a terrifying thing. Many of you have experienced this. I'm sure this fearfulness about the future. Maybe some of you even today are fearful about what will happen after this life, the life to come. It's not uncommon for people to have doubts about their own salvation. Am I really saved? Am I really going to heaven? What will become when I leave this world? Whether my salvation is real or not. But confirmation in that does not come in a feeling that we have. It doesn't come in how saved we feel or how lost we may feel on a particular day. Whether God seems near to us or whether God seems to be far away from us, that doesn't determine how assured we are in our future. But there are some signs, some proofs that we are in him. That's the way Paul, scores of time in his letters, would would talk about being in Christ, being saved. Paul wrote to the church here, and he said he, he knew their election. He knew they were saved. And how did he know? Well, that's what we're going to look at today, some of these proofs. Notice again, if you would, in verse 4. Knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. Election means to be chosen in him, to be chosen by him. He was writing, Paul was, saying that he knew these people, this church, was chosen. They were his people. They were in Christ, as he would put it many times. Peter said it like this, you're a royal generation, a chosen priesthood. But it's important to understand that the fact that God chose these in Thessalonica does not mean that he refused others. They're not some that he chooses and some that he refuses. Election is not exclusive to some. Scripture is clear about that. First Timothy 2.4 says this, that he will have all men to be saved and to come into the knowledge of the truth. John 3.15 says, Whosoever, that's not an exclusive term, whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. See, the call is for all. God so loved the world, but only some will believe. Titus 2.11, The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some would count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, we're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Election is not exclusive. He does call, but his call is not exclusive to some. Will everyone respond to his call? Of course not. Many will reject him. Many will deny the invitation. Most will, in fact. Verse 4 again. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. The call comes from God. That is, our salvation is not up to us. It's not up to me, and it's not up to you. It did not initiate with us. It's clearly shown in our text as well. Verse 5 says this, For our gospel came not unto you. In word only. The gospel came to them. They were fine. They were living in their idolatry. We just read about that. But the Lord found them. The gospel came to them. Paul came preaching. John 15 says, You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. Romans 3.11, There is none that seeketh God. God brings about salvation. Notice how the gospel came to them. 
verse 5, our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. Now notice that Paul does not say that the gospel didn't come to them in words, that is in spoken words, but it did not come to them in word only. Paul was not here advocating uh, a lifestyle evangelism that we don't actually have to say anything. We just sort of live godly lives and people will be saved as a result. Um, you've heard the, the phrase preach and if necessary, use words. Well, our lives should say something, but he came to them in word as well. But what Paul is trying to express to them is that it wasn't Paul's words that saved them. The gospel did not come to you in, in, in words only. It wasn't his choice of words. It wasn't his craftiness. It wasn't how he crafted his sermons in this eloquent way that brought about their salvation. No man ever saved another man. Save Jesus Christ, the God-man. I've heard it said, and you probably have too, where someone will meet a, maybe a preacher from long ago, and they'll say, you, I remember long time ago, you saved me. And we know what they mean, but no man ever saved another man. Our gospel came not unto you in word only, but notice this, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. See, there was something going on behind the scenes of the message that was being preached by Paul the Apostle. The work of regeneration is not man's work, it's God's work in us. It's not a human endeavor, it's not something we can work up, it's not something the preacher can craft the perfect sermon and guarantee that souls are going to be converted. It's the work of God. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's why Paul said in the latter part of verse 5, you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. We're just, we're just men. It didn't come in word only. We're just men, but it came in power. It came in the Holy Ghost. For people to hear the, for, to be saved, they need to hear the gospel. They must hear the gospel. They need to hear the words of truth. No one's ever been saved, though, without the work of the Holy Spirit. It reminds me of what Paul said to the church at Corinth in, in 1 Corinthians 2.1. He's writing, and he said, I, brethren, when I came to you, he's writing to a church, I, I came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my writing was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is more than just the power of the content of the message. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now, how did Paul know their election of God. How is he so confident that these were a saved people? And very simply, we're going to see that there was an outward manifestation of an inward work that happened in the lives of these Thessalonian believers. Salvation is external as well as internal. Something happens inside always affects the outside. The verse, verse 3, we read it a few moments ago, so we won't read it again, but it, he says that he saw their work of faith and their labor of love, their patience of hope. And then look in verse 9, if you would. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. The person who claims to be God's, but who does not show any life change, is only fooling himself. 
An external work always accompanies the internal work that the Holy Spirit does in us. If these Thessalonians would have continued worshiping their dead idols instead of turning to a living God, then Paul could not have said he was confident in their salvation. Salvation is an internal work, but the proof is external. It shows up. People can see it. And this morning, I'm going to show you, briefly, seven evidences of salvation that we see from Paul in this passage. It's not uncommon for people to question their salvation. Question, am I really saved? Paul talked a lot about assurance, but not once did he ever say, I know you're saved because I remember the time when you prayed. He never said that. Paul never said, I, I know that you're saved. I know, I know that your election is sure because that one time when I finished preaching, you came forward and you knelt down. I remember it well. You never see that. Paul often talked about his assurance and the salvation of these people, but it was always in their lives. It was always in the changes that took place in their lives. It was always in the way that they lived that brought assurance. And it wasn't just Paul. First John 2, 3, John's writing now, and he says, hereby do we know that we know him. How can we know that we know him? It's confidence. Hereby do we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Proof of our salvation is not in something that we did a long time ago. It's what we're doing right now. Here, Paul wrote, knowing brethren, beloved, your election of God. How did he know? First of all, these Thessalonians looked for godly examples to follow. They looked for godly examples to follow. And I intend to expound on each of these a little more in the days ahead, but Just briefly today, look in verse number six. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord. An evidence of a person that has been saved is a desire to grow in the Lord. And one of our primary sources of that growth comes about in the people we choose to be around and the people we choose to follow. We heard a little bit about that in Sunday school this morning. Paul told churches and believers to follow him as he followed the Lord. Of course, no one's perfect. But there are people living around us who we would do well to say, that person is following the Lord. I want to be a follower of the Lord. I want to be more like him. He's following the Lord. She is following the Lord. I want to be more like him, so I'm going to find someone to follow. There are different ways that we can do that. One of the ways we can do that in 2019 is remotely, I'll call it. We had a computer problem this week in in one of the office computers, and so we called uh, the tech support people, and with just a few clicks and uh, a few minutes, they 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 took over our computer screen, and they could see what was on the screen, and they they could navigate, and they could fix the problem from there. 60 miles away, they're fixing our problem. That's called remote control. That's remote support. They're helping, but they're helping from a distance. And I can be a follower of someone, and so can you, without ever meeting them. Technology allows that. I can follow someone's blog, subscribe to their podcast, follow them on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, learn from them without ever actually meeting them. I can purchase their books, and I'm thankful for that. That's a good thing. There are a lot of people to whom I owe a great debt of wisdom for what I've been taught that I've never met. And I may never meet. I'm thankful for that. But it's not the best way. It's not the only way. It's not even the best way to 
learn and to follow from others. Because even though we may learn much about them, you'll never really get to know a person through a computer screen. If you really want to learn from someone, you have to be around them. You have to see how they treat other people. You have to see how they treat those that they care about. You have to see how they respond to adversity. You have to be there. You have to observe it. Paul, if you read Acts chapter 17, when he first came into Thessalonica, they faced a lot of persecution, remember? So much so, it was so dangerous that they had to be sneaked out of the city by night. It was dangerous. These people saw the way he responded to persecution. They were there up close and personal. They saw the way he responded to the affliction. And and, and that's how you get to know somebody, by being in their lives. They saw the love in his eyes when he spoke to them. They saw his joy in the midst of trials, and they followed him. They looked for godly examples to follow. Number two, they had a hunger for God's word. Verse 6 again. Ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction. It's possible to be a follower of others to the exclusion of what the scriptures say, isn't it? It's possible for us as Christians or even as a church to follow what someone else is doing. Some mega church is doing and say, that's what I want to do to the exclusion of what the scriptures teach. It's possible to observe someone as a role model and say, they look like things are going pretty well. I'm going to follow them, but they may be going a different direction from what the scripture teaches, what God has said, rather than doing the real work of getting into the scripture. Now, the fact that we're here on a Sunday morning proves that we have a desire, I hope, to learn what God has said to us. These people had a hunger. They had a hunger to hear the word of God. It wasn't easy. We already talked about that in Thessalonica in their day. There was a lot of persecution, but they had a hunger to receive. They received the word in affliction. That means it wasn't easy. That means they weren't sitting in a, in, in a safe environment like this, hearing the word preached. They, they were being afflicted as they learned, but they still took it in a desire. They didn't dread going to church. Help us never to get to the place where we dread going to church. We dread hearing the preaching. We have a desire and a hunger for the word. And by the way, receiving the word is more than just hearing the word. Receiving it doesn't just mean hearing. It means to take it in, to to grasp it as mine. If I received a gift from you, I'm not just going to take it and say, ah, this is nice, and put it down. No, I'm going to take it. I'm going to receive it. It's my gift. Stay away. I had to say that last night after the Valentine's Day banquet. I came home with an M&M chocolate bar. I've never had one before, but it looks amazing. And as soon as I get home, if you know my kids, I look around, and there's no chocolate bar. And I said, that's my chocolate bar. I earned that. I had to cheat in that game last night to get that. I'm not giving it up that easy. When we receive something, it becomes ours. I'm putting this into my life. I'm, I'm personalizing it. I'm allowing this to affect my life, making it personal. That's how we receive his word. As newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Desire it. So they looked for godly examples to follow. They had a hunger for God's word. And thirdly, they responded to affliction with joy. Verse 6, you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. 
Now, affliction and joy don't really belong in the same sentence together, do they? They don't, they don't, they don't line up. They're not the same. Affliction means anguish. It, it's, it means struggle. It means persecution. It means tribulation. That's anguish. That's affliction. We know what joy means. How could they receive the word in much affliction? We talked about the situation in Thessalonica when Paul came in, the great persecution that, that they were under. And yet they, were, they kept receiving the word, not grudgingly, but with joy. Is it possible to have joy in the midst of tribulation? Is it possible to have joy in the midst of affliction? Paul said that they did. To Paul, it was an evidence of their salvation, that what they had was real. It wasn't just a, it wasn't just a prayer that they prayed one day. Notice also that it was with joy of the Holy Ghost. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. How do we have joy in the midst of tribulation? On our own, we can't. But as we allow the grace of God to work in us, the Spirit of God to work in us, we can do things that we could not otherwise do on our own. We can have joy in the midst of affliction. It's the fruit of a life that's surrendered to Christ, that's surrendered to his control. The way we respond to difficulties and challenge should be different than the way a lost co-worker responds to difficulties and affliction. Externally, there should be something different. When things don't go our way, our response, if you're a child of God, your response should be different than the person down the aisle. The way you respond should be different. It should be noticeably different. These Thessalonian believers had affliction and they responded with joy. This is a proof of our conversion. They followed the example of others. They had a hunger for God's word. They responded to affliction with joy. And number four, they provided an example to others. Verse seven again. So that you were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. We're going to develop this more fully in a future message. But they weren't just learning from other people. But they're also providing an example, a pattern for other people around them to follow. Paul followed the Lord. And he said, I'm following the Lord, now you follow me. And they began to follow him. And they said, now as we follow you and you follow the Lord, we're going to provide another pattern to follow for those that are behind us and those that are around us. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. A, a proof of conversion is not just we, we soak it in. We're not just sponges that are always taking it in, taking it in, taking it in. But no, we're providing a pattern from the people around us of the way that we ought to live and the way that we ought to be. We don't keep everything to ourselves, but we seek to impact the world around us with the things that we've been taught, with the things that we have learned. So what kind of example are you? Are you able to look around and say to your neighbor or to someone at work, just, I'm following Christ. You, you just follow along. Follow, follow behind me. I'm following him. I'm not perfect. I'm far from it. I mess up all the time, but I'm following Christ, and, 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 and I would love if you just follow my example. Why don't you come along this journey with me? Just follow me. They were providing, this is a proof of their conversion, that they provided an example to others. 
That leads us to number five. They preached the word. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God word is spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. Salvation is not just how we behave. It's about giving as well, giving away what we know. In this case, giving away the gospel, preaching. Not necessarily preaching with a microphone, but preaching, giving the gospel, evangelizing, sharing God's word with those around us. Discipleship is more than just learning. It's passing it on to others. That's why Paul said to Timothy, the things that thou hast Learned of me, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. It's an ongoing process. God teaches us, or someone else teaches us God's word, and we take it and we pass it on, not just so we can have it, and not just so they can have it, because we know that they need to pass it on to somebody else. That's discipleship. That's a proof of conversion. Paul was commending them that they sounded out the word of the Lord. That The phrase describes the way an echo travels. It just bounces and it keeps reverberating and going and going and further and further and further and further and further. They didn't keep the good news to themselves. They spread it. First in their own communities, in Macedonia, it says, around them, and then to Achaia, where Athens and Corinth and those other cities, and then even beyond. Their faith went out. They heard Paul preach it, but Paul preaching it alone wasn't going to get it everywhere it needed to go. It needed to go to them in Thessalonica, and then it went from them beyond and beyond and beyond, just like a echo from here to there and everywhere. The message cannot influence other people if they never heard it. How shall they call on him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? Verse 8 again, for from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God word is spread. Notice this, so that we need not speak anything. It's, he would go into new cities and he would begin preaching and giving the gospel and, and probably bragging on the people back in Thessalonica, but they already knew about it. Somehow they had already heard We don't have to even say anything because the message has already been spread from Thessalonica all over the place. We don't even need to say anything. That's a wonderful testimony, isn't it? They followed the example of others. Number one, they had a hunger for God's word. They responded to affliction with joy. They were an example to others. They preached the word. Number six, they abandoned their sinful life. Verse 9, for they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned from God, or to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Turning from idols was not an easy thing for them. When a person's been reared in a sinful habit, in their case, idolatry, it was not easy to break from that. Imagine you grew up, your parents participated in some sin, They brought you up doing the same. You became a teenager, you kept it going. You became an adult, you kept it going. You passed it on to your kids. Perhaps you're thinking of something like that in your own family. It wasn't an easy thing to just discard. Just say, okay, I'm not going to do this anymore. No, this was a sinful habit that they had been carrying with them their entire life, maybe for generations. Turning away from that would not be easy, but that's exactly what they did. They turned to God from 
idols. It's impossible to clean up our act outside of the grace of God. It's impossible. So they first saw God in his glory, and they turned to him. And the result was a turning away from the idols that had plagued them. It was a change in their behavior. We call this repentance. And there's no clearer indication of the surety of our salvation than that of repentance. Genuine conversion is displayed in genuine repentance. God doesn't want to be a part of your life. He wants to be your life. The proof that you're a child of God is not that you go to church or that you put some money in the plate from time to time. The the proof that you are his is that the life, the sinful life that you were once a part of, you put that way and you turned wholeheartedly to God. You've forsaken the sinful, selfish life that you lived. And your idols are not the same as the idols of the Thessalonians. You're not struggling to give up idols of silver and gold. Probably. Your idols may be your time, your time, your job, your finances, your hobbies, your entertainment, even your own family. Idolatry says, that's mine. That's God, you can have this stuff, but that's mine. I'll give you this day, but these days are mine. I'll give you this amount, but the rest of it is mine. That's idolatry. These are things that we've made idols of. Things that we're not willing to give up. I'm putting that, I'm giving him his part, but the rest is mine. Salvation brings about and change in the way that we look at these things. What has God changed in your life? What have you given up? What did you turn from when you turned to God? Could someone say about your life like they did with Paul? I know, I know, I know he's a Christian because he, he used to do this stuff. This used to be his life, but now this is his life. He's not the same now as he was then. That's what Paul said about these Thessalonians. You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. They, served their, they left those dead idols that they had been Worshipping for so long, and now they're serving a living, a living God. That's a good trade, isn't it? We're looking at evidences of conversion. Number one, they followed the example of others. Number two, they had a hunger for God's word. Number three, they responded to affliction with joy. Number four, they were an example to others. Number five, they preached the word. Number six, they abandoned their sinful life. And lastly, number seven. They longed for the coming of Christ. Verse 10. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. When we're saved, our priorities change. Our expectations change. We have a hope in the future that goes beyond retirement. We have a hope that goes well beyond what we're going to do in our days of work are over. And it's more than just a realization that Christ will return. The word is wait. And the idea that I, that I get from it is when I'm at a town of, of Lauren just sitting by the window waiting, longing, longing for me to come home. I don't think she does that. But that's what I think it means. 
when's he going to be home? When's he coming? I know he's coming. Where is he? I like to think that's what she does when I'm gone. This is, a, this is a longing. It's waiting for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Prior to their deliverance, these Thessalonians had nothing to look forward to. There was only wrath and death and hell and destruction. But now they've been delivered from the wrath to come, and they're eagerly awaiting the arrival of the one who has delivered them. Imagine that you owe a great debt, a debt that you could never even begin to pay if you worked a million lifetimes. A debt that, if not paid, would condemn you to an eternity in the most terrible, horrific place imaginable. And imagine that someone that you'd never seen or never met came and gave his own life to pay that debt for you. And imagine that you knew that one day you were going to see the one face-to-face that paid that great debt for you. That's what's happening. Wouldn't you long for that day? Wouldn't you long for that meeting? Finally, I get to meet the one who, who bled and died, the one who was beaten, the one who was whipped, the one who was hung on a tree and mocked, and, and, and the one who had nails driven through his hands and driven through his feet and a spear driven through his side, and the one who took the sins of the whole world, but specifically took my sins upon his own body and willingly took all of that. One day I'm going to get to meet him. It's a wonderful thought, isn't it? And to wait, verse 10, for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Don't you think this expectation of this meeting with Jesus affected the way that they lived? I do. Don't you believe that our lifestyles would be affected as we eagerly await the one who gave everything for us? I do. A friend of mine recently said to me about Christians that we're not better than the lost, but we are better off. We do have a hope for the future that goes beyond this life. We have an expectation of meeting the one who has given us so much. We have a bright future awaiting. These are characteristics of conversion. And I hope that they've served as an encouragement to you, an assurance of your faith. An assurance of salvation that that we're in him. Not because of a prayer that we prayed many years ago, but because of the work of grace that God did in our life and is continuing to do in our lives. Are these characteristics of, of your life? If not, you would do well to heed Paul's words to the Corinthians when he said, examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Because for the unconverted, there is wrath to come. There are many who have never been delivered from their wrath. They have no expectation of meeting him because they've never been delivered. But Christ's salvation is for all. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Behold, today... Today is the day, now is the day of salvation.